Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27 this morning as we continue our way almost to its completion, which we will do within this month. Uh, we have been in the book of Acts for over a year now, and we are looking forward to its completion. And uh, Lord willing, after our Reformation conference at the end of this month, we will begin a new book of the Bible, uh, Lord willing, the Gospel of Luke. So we can be looking forward to that as we complete Acts and then go to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ given to us through the other letter of Paul, that, or excuse me, of Luke and uh, the gospel of Luke. But this morning we are looking at Acts chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, and we will carry on through verse 38. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of the Adramatan, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for, putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyrus, being because the, the winds were against us, and because we had sailed across the open sea, across the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myria and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy, and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete, of Salmon, coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and ship, but also of lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, and the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchored and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeastern struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. But fearing that they would run ground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest laid on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And before, 
Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. That will be exactly as I have told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we had been driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day. They've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. As many of you might know, my family and I were gone this last week in Florida, along with my wife's extended family. And part of our trip as we go down there, usually every year at this time, we typically go on an annual charter fishing trip. Now, not all of my family goes, it's just Peter and myself are the venturous ones that uh, do such thing, along with a few others in our family. But uh, we have gone out on many of these before, but this is the first time that we have ever gone out when there is a hurricane in the same body of water in which we are venturing out into, which is a bit unnerving, especially knowing that the passage that you have to preach on the Sunday after is one in which there is a giant storm that causes, eventually, a shipwreck. No doubt it made me to second guess if I should really go out on this boat. And yet, maybe perhaps even foolishly, I still did. But in doing so, I thought and even prayed, Lord, I really do appreciate good sermon analogies, but please not this time. I do not need a firsthand experience of what Paul experienced in order to preach this sermon. So may the sun be bright, may the waves be small, and may we arrive home safely, to which I'm glad to say that prayer was answered and all went well. And we are, as a family, glad to be back and especially for myself, glad to be on dry ground once again. Well, after reading over the last several weeks the continual imprisonment and trial of the Apostle Paul as he has made his case before the Roman tribunal, before the Sanhedrin, before the Roman governors Felix and Festus, and finally King Herod, Paul is finally on his way to Rome. He's placed on a ship that we just read about as a prisoner, so that he is able to make his defense before Caesar himself. And what we read is that the Apostle Paul did not have a good trip or a pleasant travel on his way to Rome. In fact, it's 
quite the opposite. The boat that he is traveling on is caught in a hurricane-like storm. And not just for a day, not even for a week, but we read for two whole weeks. Paul, as well as all of his shipmates, are caught in this storm. Now, we might read a story like this and think, wow, what a story, even a harrowing story at that. But that is all that it is. It's just a story, nothing more. Truly, there's nothing here that can be applicable to my life. Because, Pastor, I do not plan to be seafaring anytime soon. And if I do, most likely it'll be on a cruise ship with a a fruity drink in my hand. So I think I'll be okay. But our doctrine of Scripture is that all Scripture is profitable and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, and this passage is no exception. And so this Scripture has been included for our instruction, for our edification, and for our application to our lives. And what I think we'll see is that this experience that Paul has may be very different than what we might encounter But what he does encounter is very analogous to our lives, and there's many lessons for us to learn. And so today, we will see this aspect of the Apostle Paul being sea-tossed, and then next week, him being shipwrecked. But first, we read in verse 1 that it was decided that we should set sail for Italy. Now, those are momentous words in this book of Acts because it has taken years to get to this point, at least two years and probably even much longer, perhaps three or four. The Apostle Paul has sat in Caesarea in a Roman prison. He has been waiting for trials. He is waiting for any type of movement in his case. And finally, the time has come for him to set sail, which no doubt demonstrates progress. It demonstrates movement. And it must have felt good for Paul to feel the sun on his face and the wind in his hair. But yet this was no pleasure cruise. This is not the Viking cruise line of the Mediterranean Sea. No, this was an imprisonment voyage. And that's what we read here in verse 1, that they handed Paul over as a prisoner to a centurion who would keep guard of him as he makes this journey to Rome. Paul, we remember, is a prisoner, and this was a prisoner transport. And no doubt this was a humbling reality. Recently I saw on the road one of these prisoner transport buses, and one of my children was with me, and they noticed this bus and noticed that it wasn't a school bus, and so they asked, what was it? And I said, well, that's a a prisoner transport bus, and they're transporting bad men that did not listen to their mommies and daddies. You always got to add that last part. But that's what you think, isn't it? When you see something like that is that these are, no doubt, guilty people, people that have done something wrong. And no doubt that was the case when people saw Paul. As a Roman prisoner, here is someone that has done something wrong, somebody that has done something bad, perhaps, but that is not the case. In fact, the Apostle Paul had done everything right, and yet he was unfairly and unjustly imprisoned. 
And yet what we read and what we have read is that God's work is never imprisoned, it's never impeded. His church may be, his children might be, but God's will and God's work will always be accomplished for the purpose of which it is intended to accomplish. And though the circumstances of our lives or the circumstances around us may not be ideal, God is always about his work, sometimes even when it seems otherwise. And isn't that what we read in this passage? In fact, the circumstances are less than ideal. They are downright terrible. That is what we read in verses 1 through 7. And you can read this passage and you notice that there was a a lot of uh, geographical locations that are noted on here and they can be traced out on a map and I encourage you to do so perhaps this afternoon. But what it demonstrates is that this was a real account of what really happened. This is not an embellishment or it's not just used for entertainment for Luke's readership. And what we read is that this initial trip took longer than what was anticipated because of bad weather. In fact, you read that in the first seven verses. It says, because the winds were against us. In verse seven, we sailed slowly for a a number of days. Verse nine, we could not go any farther because we had difficulty coasting along. In other words, the very initial part of this trip is that it was not going very well that those that were trying to get to Rome were behind schedule and were not getting as where they wanted to be as quickly as they would have liked. And so it put them in a predicament, didn't it? It says that much time, verse 9, had passed, and now the voyage was now dangerous, meaning it was getting into a season where you did not want to sail because bad weather could come about. The apostle Paul tries to warn them, As a good teacher and instructor, he tried to give good advice and say, this is not good. If we venture out, there is going to be loss, and we should probably stay here for the winter. But we read in verse 11 that they paid him no attention. Rather, the centurion paid attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And you can imagine why. Paul was a prisoner. Here's a a preacher telling them if they should sail or not. You think I'll listen to those that know the waters a little bit better. And so they decide we can make it a little bit farther. We can get to a, a better place, a better spot. Now, oftentimes, we can think the same in our life. And there's something analogous here, isn't there? And I don't want to over-spiritualize this point, but when you think about your own life and the life of mankind, what is it that we're always looking for? What is it that we're always in search of? A slightly better place than where we are currently. A different life circumstance. A different life situation. Perhaps something that will provide a a little more peace. A little more security. Just a little bit more happiness. A little bit more joy than what we're finding currently. And oftentimes we believe it's just right there. It's just right around the corner. Where we're at is good, but if I can just make it a little bit farther, 
If I could perhaps have that job or that position or be married to that person or have this or that, we can always be a little bit better than where we are. And that is exactly what the ship captain and the owner of the boat and the centurion decided, didn't they? They looked on the map and they said, we're here, but over there would be better. And the Paul, Paul as a prophet, prophet-like, says, you know what? Over there may not be better. Over there may not be greater. In fact, right here might be the place that we should stay. And I mention that because life is always a fine balance of pursuing and finding that which is next and finding that which is even more. At the same time, having contentment in where we are in the present. And that takes wisdom. And it takes discernment. And we must oftentimes ask, is this of the Lord or is this of just selfish gain, selfish purposes? Because the Apostle Paul will tell us in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And we need to be reminded of that. Godliness is what we should be seeking for. And having contentment with where the Lord has us, even in the present, even at the same time pursuing forward towards that which lies ahead. Well, the owner of the boats and the captain ignore Paul, and they set sail again. And what we read is that Paul was right. More may not be better. Over there might actually be worse because you might not be able to get there. And that is exactly what takes place. We read in verse 14 that a dreaded northeastern strikes. It's essentially a, a hurricane. And they are caught in its fury. And despite their very best efforts, they are essentially driven wherever the storm wants them to go. And this is not like the storms that we get here in Atlanta, Georgia, that lasts for about an hour or two, and yes, there's a lot of wind, and yes, there's a lot of rain, but they are gone after a short while. Now, this storm was for days. In fact, we read it was for at least 14 days, two weeks. Can you imagine? I went out on the boat this week, and just for a little while, there was some rough water, and I about had enough after an hour this was for 14 days. I can't even comprehend. And the storm kept them right at the center of it. And they were unable to do anything about their situation. And yet notice all the things in futility that they tried. In verse 16 and 17, it says that they tried to secure the, the boat, the ship. They tried to hoisten it up. They tried to use supports, ropes underneath it to to undergird it, to stabilize it. It says that they lowered the, the gear, verse 17, which perhaps means that they, they dropped the anchor so that they wouldn't just be driven, so that they could have some stabilizing force and not be blown completely off course. Verse 18, it says that they, they gave up hope on that and they began to jettison the, the cargo, the things that they were to, to bring, the things that they were shipping. They said, we may not make it, so this stuff is definitely not going to Make it. But then in verse 19, they even begin to start throwing the tackle overboard, meaning that the very things that they needed 
in order to sail, in order to make the ship function, they started to even get rid of those things. And what you read is that these are individuals that are in dire straits. And what makes it even worse, it says in verse 20, that they did not see the sun nor stars for days because it was so dark. This storm blocked out any light whatsoever. Not only was that frightening, but you need to remember that these sailors did not have GPS. The sun and the stars were their GPS. That's how they navigated. So in other words, they had no clue where they were and where they were going. And it says that they had no hope that they were going to make it anywhere safely. In fact, we read that at the end of verse 20, doesn't it? It says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So in summary, they had no support, no supplies, no sun, no stars, and ultimately no hope. These were dead men sailing. Again, is there something analogous to our life? I believe there is. And what we must recognize is that storms are real and are part of the reality of our fallen world. Actual storms, like we saw this week that hit the coast of Florida, as well as metaphorical storms of life, those challenges and those difficulties, those trials and tribulations that are sent our way. And what is interesting, what is even perhaps fascinating, what is perhaps sometimes bewildering, is that God does not always prevent storms, does he? Or does he navigate us around them? In fact, from this passage, we can say that God sometimes sails us directly into them. And that's what happens here. God knew who was on this boat. He knew where the Apostle Paul eventually would have to go. And yet, on the way, on the journey, he places the Apostle Paul in the middle of this storm. And a very bad storm at that And so what this tells us, unlike the health and wealth preachers of our day, the prosperity preachers of our day that will tell you that adversity and challenges and difficulties are not of God, we can say wholeheartedly that that is a bold-faced lie. God does not promise us sunshine and rainbows. In the very least, we can say that he allows them into our life, and even more, I think we can say that he sends them our way. And sometimes they can be like a living hell on earth and scary as hell. And we must ask, why would God allow this? Why would God do this? Why does he send storms? And why would he put children, his own children, in the middle of them? Well, storms, whatever those storms might be, demonstrate that we are completely and utterly helpless and powerless. That is true always, isn't it? But it's especially true when the storms of life come. That's what we see with these sailors, don't we? We know that sailors are some some rugged individuals. They have a very strong sense of self-confidence, of self-accomplishment, that they can do anything, that they can handle anything that comes their way. You are not a good sailor if you're a timid sailor. There's no such thing, right? 
Well, the same can be very true of us. That we can think oftentimes that we are quite strong and in fact quite powerful. And we can handle anything that comes our way. Well, the storms of life pulverize that foolish thinking. They demonstrate that we have in and of ourselves no supports, no supplies, and utterly no strength. And that on our own, we are utterly and hopelessly lost. We are as lost and helpless as a detached buoy tossed to and fro on the seas of life. We don't know up from down, left from right, especially so when the stars and the sun don't shine, when we don't know where we're going and what's taking place and what the Lord is allowing to happen to us. Let me just pause and ask, have you been there? Are you there now? And what do you do? Now, there is an answer, but I think we need to sit just for a moment in the helplessness of this situation. See, too often we are so quick to to run to the answer and run to the remedy, and we ought to, but we need to first realize that there is ultimately no earthly answer or no earthly remedy in the storms of life. And not only in the storms of life, but in life in general. We must all come to the end of ourselves and realize that this earth nor us as humankind has any answers in and of ourselves. This world has a lot of problems. Oftentimes we are the root of our own problems, but we have no solutions and we have no answers. We are hopeless apart from God. And verse 20 is true of each and every one of us. All hope of being saved is lost. It is abandoned. And so we need to look outside of ourselves, indeed outside of this world, to another source, to another solution that is God himself, because that is all we got. And in fact, that is all that we need, both in the storms of life as well as in smooth sailing. In sunny days as well as in stormy days, when the sun shines bright or when the sun is blocked from our eyes and we cannot save, there is only one answer. There is ultimately only one hope, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is especially true in the midst of the storm, right? That is what we read here in verses 21 through 26, that the apostle Paul can give hope And the hope is not in himself. The hope is not, hey, if we just do a little bit more, if we work a little bit harder, if we do this or we do that, then we will be saved. No, the hope is that God is the one that's going to rescue us. God is the one that is going to save us. And that is exactly what he is able to tell all his shipmates when he says that an angel of God, whom I belong to and whom I worship, has said, do not be afraid. There is going to be no loss of life for you or any that are on this boat. And I tell you that that is not just comfort for the Apostle Paul. That is not just comfort for his shipmates. That is comfort for each and every one of us. That as we go through the storms of life, 
That comfort and support only comes from God himself. And there is two things that you must hold on to when you endure such storms. It is the presence and the promises of the Lord. The presence and the promises of the Lord are the only anchors in the midst of the chaos of life. Because it is when the sky is at its darkest that the, the stars shine the most bright. And so too it is the presence and promise of God that shines most bright when life is at its darkest point. That is what Psalm 23 says that we just sang moments ago. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you hear what David is saying? I can go through this valley because you are with me. Your presence is here. Your rod and your staff, which is your word, those are the things that comfort me. And so there's several points of application that I want us to look at from this passage this day. And the first is that in the midst of the storms, we must cling to the promises of God. Not what is, not what is going on, but what God has promised to you. That is your firm foundation. That is your stability in the midst of the sea, in the midst of the waves. When we are tossed to and fro, the anchor of God's word and his promises are that which keep us stable in the midst of life's storms. The promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. Again, the psalmist can say, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. Or if I descend to Sheol, so too you are there. The psalmist is saying, in heavenly days as well as in Sheol-like days, your presence never fails me. In good days and bad days, in great days or horrible days, you are with me. That is the comfort. That is the strength that we gain. Again, we have the promise that all things must work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. The promise that not a hair can fall to the ground except it be a part of your Father's will. It's a promise that the Apostle Paul can even extend to these sailors in verse 34. And ultimately, all of these Promises are true because of that truth that we confessed earlier in the Heidelberg Catechism that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the confidence that we can have that I am not my own, that I don't have to have it all figured out, that I don't always have all of the solutions or all the answers, but God does. And I can be confident in Him, I can rest in Him. Well, that is the first thing we must do as we think about these storms of life is to cling to the promises of God. But notice, second, we must quickly note that the presence and the promise of God do not make the storms immediately go away, do they? We know that this promise comes to the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul is able to extend it to the rest of the sailors, but as soon as he says it, as soon as he tells them about them, automatically the sun did not come out nor the birds began to sing. In fact, it looks like that they had to endure several more days of storm 
No doubt, many of the sailors were like, what were you talking about? Are you sure? Are you sure you just didn't see something? No. They had to be confident that this truly was the promise of God. And so too, when you pray or claim the promises of God, you may not immediately see relief. I would say hardly do you immediately see relief or answers. But that does not make them untrue. They are true regardless of what we see or even what we think. Because God is true and every man is a liar. And we are to walk by faith and not by sight. See, the promises allow you to to ride the waves of the storm with more confidence and more trust and more peace in him. Well, third, we as Christians are to provide temporary relief amidst a sea-tossed world. What do I mean by that? Well, the Apostle Paul is able to say to them in verse 21, I essentially told you so. You should have listened to me, and we wouldn't have been in this problem. But nevertheless, Paul does not have the attitude of, well, you got yourself into this. You're just going to have to get yourself out. The Apostle Paul doesn't just sit on the sidelines, does he? And laugh and, and scoff and make fun of them and say, well, you idiots, you should have listened to me, and therefore you can handle this on your own. And I say that because sometimes I think that's how we can respond to this world, isn't it? That we can be cynical. Where we can look at the world and say, well, if you didn't make such stupid choices, maybe you wouldn't have such stupid consequences in your life. Let me ask, is that how Christ acted towards you? Is that how Christ acts towards you? Does he say, you know what, you can figure this out on your own. You made the mess. You clean it up. No, the Lord Jesus Christ stooped low. He came all the way down, didn't he? And took on flesh to rescue and save us. And so too we are to serve our fellow man. And that is what we see with the Apostle Paul. That is what it means to be a Christian. It is giving help. It is giving advice. It is providing leadership. And he provides leadership on this boat, which if you think about it, he's a prisoner on this boat. These are his captors. And yet he's trying to bring about their good. And yet, he does not have a chicken little attitude that the sky is falling, that we must abandon all hope, that there's no purpose, there's no point. No, he's giving help, he's giving relief, he's giving hope. I love verses 34 through 35, where he says that it's been the 14th day, he says this to the sailors, the 14th day in which you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from your head. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks in the presence of all, and he broke it, and he began to eat. And notice what the response is. They were all encouraged. And they all took food with him. That is the Christian attitude towards this world, isn't it? And that is why we do what we do. That is why we give the acts of service that we give. That's why we do the food for Norton Park and food for Haiti and the hat and glove tree coming up this winter and the shoeboxes for Christmas and the knitting of, of blankets and, and small stuffed animals. A cynic might say, well, don't people just need Jesus? And I would say, yes, they do need Jesus and they also need food and they also need clothing. And what we see is that temporary provision often is used to point towards eternal provision that is in Christ. And so in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a sinking ship, 
in the midst of a lost and dying world, we have as Christians the best opportunity to provide leadership and to provide help and to provide comfort and ultimately to provide hope, which is found in Christ. And that is, too, what we see in this passage is that ultimate provision and salvation comes in Christ and Christ alone. The promise was given that all that are a part of this ship will be saved, but we see that a few sailors try to find their own way. Essentially, they thought, well, you know what, I know what the Apostle Paul said, I know what God said through him, but you know what, if we get off on this small little boat, we might be able to make it safely. And Paul is able to say to them, unless these men stay in this ship, you cannot be saved. The salvation of God works in the same way, doesn't it? God has given one way of salvation, and that way is through Christ and through Christ alone. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But the opposite is also true, that if you do not confess, if you do not believe in your heart, you will not be saved. There are no alternatives. There is no salvation outside of Christ. Christ is the lifeboat. All other earthly vessels are sinking ships. And so make sure you're on the ship of Christ. You're found in him, and you're found in him alone. Fifth and finally, it's a small point, but I think it's an important one for us to remember that God is faithful not only to provide himself, but to provide others in the midst of the storm. It might be easy to miss that, but as we began this passage, we read in verse 2, it says that we put ourselves to sea. Now, the we is obviously Paul, as well as Luke, and then we also read accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, and there might have been even more. And that is incredibly significant, See, Paul had no choice but to get on that ship. He was a prisoner. But these others, Luke and Aristarchus, they had a choice. They didn't need to go, but yet they chose to go as companions of Paul. Paul, the Roman prisoner. They were willing to to bear the, the shame and the harsh conditions along with Paul. It's one thing to remember those in chain. It's another to join them. And yet, that is what these two did. And I tell you, that is true friendship. And it is rare. There will be very few that will go to these lengths. But those that do, those that sit with you in sorrow, that journey with you in pain, those are bonds that last a lifetime. And that is needed. That is where the Lord Jesus Christ and his church comes into play. As I mentioned before, amidst the the storms of life, we need the presence of God, we need the promises of God, but God doesn't just only provide his presence, he provides the presence of others to be with you. And God's presence often is given in and through the presence of others. Those that will love you, those that will pray with you and for you, those that will remind you of the promises of God even when you forget them. In other words, we're never meant to be lone rangers in the Christian life. We're never to have this voyage that we are on and we're the only ones on that ship. 
No, God always includes others. He gives others, not the least of which is your church. And that is the blessing of being a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is why we need each other. You need your church, and your church needs you. And you're not meant to suffer alone. That is true if you are going through the dark soul of the night in the midst of depression or struggling with sin or suffering and are in pain. Whatever it is, you're not a burden. Rather, it's a joy for us to be able to walk with you and to give you the comfort that that we are able to give because it's only the comfort that we also have received in Christ Jesus. And so, Smyrna Presbyterian Church, we must be that church to one another. We can't just say, well, I'll pray for you and send them on their way. No, we're to walk with them. We're to, to bear one another's burdens. When we go through this Sunday school lesson of being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the one another's are so important. And we see that it is God's love given to us through the body of Christ. And so too, we even see it here on this ship. Well, as we approach the table, this storm reminds me of another. One that the disciples went through with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Sea of Galilee. And you remember Jesus was asleep on the stern. And the disciples go from concerned to frightened to questioning if Jesus even cares, if he even loves. And they even wake him up and say, do you not care that we drown? And storms might make us feel that way. Jesus, do you not care that I drown? Well, what these passages teach us is that he cares more than we can imagine. He cares enough to come and give his life on the cross for us. As we go to this table, is it not that which we are reminded again and again how much he has done for us? Now, this does not mean that we are freed from all cares or all trials or all difficulties. But it does guarantee and reassure us that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us in the middle of it, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, even if it involves many storms along the way. Well, let's approach the table then this morning. And instead of me closing in prayer you would take your worship God. We have a hymn of response, and I want us to make this our prayer this day. I'm going to ask Alan to play through it once, and then uh, you can stay seated, but let us sing this as our closing prayer this morning.